We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back to the Truth Perspective. In the studio today, we have returning Meg, William, Shane, and Ilan. Say hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hello. And I'm your host uh, for today, Harrison Cayley. And it is January 30th, end of the month. First month of 2016 has gone by very fast. And of course, news is not stopping. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world. And so today we are very pleased to have Robert Fantina here to talk with us about it all. Um, Bob is an activist and journalist working for peace and social justice. Now, shortly after the, 20, uh, the 2004 presidential election, he moved from the U.S. to Canada, where he wrote the book Desertion and the American Soldier. He is also author of the novel Look Not Unto the Morrow, a Vietnam-era anti-war love story, and his most recent book is entitled Empire, Racism, and Genocide, A History of U.S. Foreign Policy, published by Red Pill Press. He is currently active in supporting the human rights struggles of the Palestinian people, and he writes regular columns for websites like Counterpunch and Mint Press News. You can visit his webpage at robertfantina.com. That's F-A-N. T-I-N-A, robertfantina.com, and you can find him on Twitter. Uh, so, Bob, it's great to be speaking with you today, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Great. Uh, so, first of all, uh, maybe can you just tell our listeners a bit more about yourself? Um, have you always been a social activist, um, a writer, or was there a time in your life when something changed and you... Uh, kind of started on this path? Uh, I've always been, had an interest in social justice, but didn't do much about it until uh, probably I started hearing more about uh, atrocities going on in the world and looking into why they were happening. And that I looked into them initially because people were suffering and I wanted to know what I could possibly do to help alleviate that suffering. And then I started looking at the causes what was the catalyst? Why, why were they suffering? So why were people fleeing their countries? Why were people starving to death? Uh, why were people dying who were, who were defenseless and innocent? So as I started looking into that more, uh, that led me to see what my country, the United States at the time, was doing to assist these people. And what I learned was not so much that they were assisting, but that the country was, was causing a number of these problems. These, these tragedies that were going on in the world. So at that point, I did begin to write, and uh, my first my, my first foray into that was uh, my book on desertion, because I had heard about from the time I was a child, uh, I'd, I'd heard desertions are traitors or cowards or both, and that they hate the country and they're selfish and all this. 
So I started doing more reading and started reading accounts of deserters who were deserting from Iraq or who had deserted from the Vietnam War and started to learn something very different. So then I wondered if that was the case, if there were legitimate reasons for people to desert from earlier U.S. wars. And I started doing some extensive research, which resulted in that in my, my book, Desertion of the American Soldier. Cool. And then, um, so you moved in twenty or 2004, right? Well, it took me, the or election was in November of 2004. You know, yeah. The following year, it took me uh, about six months to find work in Canada, uh, but I did, and I moved to Canada and have lived there ever since. Uh, Canada is not a utopian society, but at the time I moved and still today, I didn't want my tax dollars going to kill innocent Iraqis. Uh, and so for that reason, that was kind of the last straw. That was, was when I left country. So, well, I'm from Canada myself, and, um, <laughs> I mean, I've, uh, you know, since the Iraq War, I've had similar sentiments and feelings as you, but it was, I just have to say that it was kind of a disappointment for me just to see that the way... Uh, kind of the way Canada was run and the way we handled our foreign policy for the last 10, 15 years. Um, what's, what's, your, what's your opinion on Canada's part in, for example, you know, the global war on terror? And uh, maybe you can give some comments on what you think about the, the new leadership. Like, do you think anything will change under Justin Trudeau? Okay, a couple of very good questions there. Uh, first, let's go to the, the war on terror, which... Uh, is waged mainly by the United States and a few allies, and it's yeah. really a war of terror. Is the United States that is uh, terrorizing innocent people, particularly right now in the Middle East. Uh, we hear in the United States so much, oh, why are these people coming to our country? Go back to where you came from. Well, if the United States would stop bombing their countries, maybe they'd, they'd be able to stay there. So the war on terror is really a war of terror, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, because I think it's important to understand why the United States feels it needs to wage this war of terror. But in answer to your second question about uh, Mr. Trudeau's election, I do believe that uh, he was elected mainly on the basis of his name, uh, his mm -hmm. father having been a, a very popular prime minister. I don't see I see some change, changes in uh, the country, but I don't think very much in foreign policy. Uh, Justin Trudeau has stated that uh, the BDS, the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Movement, which is uh, aimed at bringing equal rights and uh, self-determination to the Palestinian people, has no place in Canada. He said that Israel Apartheid Week, which is a, a very popular and important activity on university campuses, usually in the spring of the year, which also uh, uh, kind of highlights and focuses on the injustices that Israel is perpetrating on the Palestinian people. He said that Israel Apartheid Week has no place in Canada. So I'm not optimistic about his his administration as far as foreign policy. He has stopped. Uh, the Canada was involved in actual bombing raids in the Middle East under uh, Mr. Harper. Uh, Justin Trudeau has stopped that, but it's still doing training and other other things that are supporting the war of terror. Yeah, um, 
I got to yeah, I can't I can't disagree with anything that you say there. Um okay. I mean the, I've seen uh, probably the worst thing that I saw was a little um I don't think it was an official like campaign video, but it was a video of Trudeau um being asked a question about Israel. And mm-hmm. it was just the most like his statement his statement in response to that was just the most sycophantic um just it it was it was just really disgusting. He was just saying mm-hmm. that you know that Israel was the pretty much the greatest country. That Canada was uh, basically a um, would always be a supporter of Israel no matter what. And there's no chance that you know that he'd change that whatsoever. And basically, what you, what you'd expect to hear from you know pretty much any big politician in the U.S. or Canada. And um, yes. You know, on the one hand, I, I I I know that if you're going to be in politics in North America, you can't you can't really say anything else. I mean, you pretty much have to say something like that. But on the other hand, it's just the way that he said it um, was just uh, it was really creepy, actually, to see to see him talk about it. But one one interesting thing that I saw in the news just this last week was that um, Canada's uh, was it foreign minister um, had said that. That Canada needs to kind of um, approach its relationship with Russia in a in a different way. We need to kind of start cooperating with Russia as opposed to to being an enemy. Um, so I thought that was an interesting statement. I don't know if anything will come out of it because, at least until now, Canada has been on um, kind of taken the American line. It seems and just. Mm-hmm. With with their totally, you know, every if it's anti-Russian, it's good, and um, you know, even when it's not. So, um, right, right, yeah. It's always encouraging to hear anyone talk about uh, more outreach to other nations and any world mm-hmm. leader talking about diplomacy rather than uh, saber rattling or uh, talking in in hostile terms about another country. So, the foreign minister's words are certainly encouraging. As you said, we'll see if they amount to anything, but at least it's a step in the right direction. It's also interesting when you mentioned uh, Justin Trudeau's comments about Israel and how it was almost almost creepy. I don't know if you've paid attention to much that Hillary Clinton has said about uh, Israel, but she speaks of Israel in almost romantic terms. Talk about creepy. She she talks about it being a flower that blossomed in the desert and, and all this other stuff. Well, when one considers the amount of Point eight. The United States has poured into Israel in the last several years. Any anything would be a flower blossoming in the desert. So it doesn't matter what conditions are, with that much money, and with complete immunity from in, any international accountability, any country could become rich and powerful. But uh, she, oh, one of her biggest uh, supporters is a, a billionaire who has said that his only issue, he's a one-issue candidate, his issue is Israel. When asked how much he will contribute to uh, Mrs. Clinton's campaign, he said as much as is needed. Yeah, was was that um, Chaim um, Saban? Was it Saban? Sab- That's who it is. Yeah, yeah. I just there was just a story uh, again this week. Apparently, he bought something like forty percent of shares in the company that owns the the satire site The Onion, and oh, really? so. Yeah, he now has basically a controlling uh, controlling share in that company, and in the Onion, and so 
he's on the record as saying that basically, like you said, he's a one-issue guy. It's it's Israel first, and that's it. And that um, well, just let me let me get it open because he says some mm-hmm. he, he he says some funny stuff in there. Not well, scary. Yeah. So um, right. Well, there goes the onion, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Which is the kind of the which really sucks because they had some really good stuff, um, some really good headlines. Uh, well, just here's some examples. So in the past, they published articles like uh, with headlines like Israel, Palestinians given ample time to evacuate to nearby bombing sites. Uh, Israel vows yeah. to use veto power if Chuck Hagel confirmed as U- U.S. Secretary of Defense. Israel calls for an increase in U.S. taxes to fund attacks on Gaza. So, I mean, those are pretty hard-hitting headlines. Uh, but now with this guy Saban right. running things, uh, I mean, so there's a quote from him, like he said, I'm a one-issue guy, and my issue is Israel. Um, he has said that he kind of takes a three-pronged approach to um, to politics, and that is to um, basically to, to own media. Or Okay, one is political donations, the other is establishing think tanks, and the third is controlling media outlets. <laughs> So now he buys buys up the onion, and I mean, yeah, it's just going to be downhill from there. Um, this guy's mm-hmm. kind of crazy. He said that uh, in 2014, he said that if Israel believed the anticipated international nuclear deal with Iran quote puts Israel's security at risk, then Israel should bomb the living daylights out of these sons of bitches. So those are his words, and this is the guy mm-hmm. that says that Clinton. That Hillary Clinton, um, he totally agrees with her. He thinks that she's the she would be great for the country and great for the world. And on the issues that he cares about, Clinton is quote pristine plus. So I mean, how's that for you know needing the Obama bag? Can you get that last quote you were breaking up just a little bit? Okay, yeah, he said that. Uh, yep, yeah, he said that Clinton would be great for the country and great for the world. On the issues I care about. Clinton is pristine plus. Okay, yes. Well, well, that says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, He only cares about one mm-hmm. issue. Uh-huh. He only cares about one issue, and she's his candidate. Uh, and it is scary. And he said his, uh, his three-pronged approach is total contributions, uh, think tank, and media ownership. Political yeah. contributions is really the same as uh, congressional ownership. Really, mm-hmm. uh, it's just another way of saying it. He, he, he and during uh, the lobby purchases purchases Congress. They they pay a premium price, but uh, they get what they pay for. They uh, donate all kinds of money to all of the uh, members of Congress, just about all the members of Congress, and Congress votes the way they they the lobby expects them to. So uh, Hillary Clinton should run for. Uh, Prime Minister of Israel, I'm sure she would win, uh, and that's where she belongs. Yep. 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 Couldn't agree more. Now, uh, just mm-hmm. so readers know, um, you've got an article on this that just you just published um, middle of January called "Hillary Clinton, Israel First. It's a great article, and uh, you just kind of take some quotes of the things that she's sa- said in a recent essay oh, for yeah. Uh, yeah the Jewish Journal. That she wrote on January 6th. I'm just going to read one oh, of the quotes yeah. on here. Yeah, just because it's uh, just to hear her in her own words. Um, so let me go down here. Okay, yeah, so she writes that 
we continue to fight against global efforts to delegitimize Israel. The boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, known as BDS, is the latest front in this battle. BDS demonizes Israeli scientists and intellectuals, even young students, and compares Israel to South African apartheid. That's wrong, and this campaign should end. Yeah, yeah. comment? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, my comment. Uh, uh, oh. Are you asking me or asking the panel? Oh, anyone. Go ahead, go ahead, Bob. Well, uh, it's interesting how so many politicians that BDS demonizes Israel. Israel is doing that all by itself, by uh, its murderous rampages in the West Bank, its carp- periodic carp bombing of the Gaza Strip. Uh, we have to remember that Palestine has no army, navy, or air force, that the rockets that Hamas uh, occasionally shoots into into Israel, have been described by uh, Norman Finkelstein, an author and professor, a son of Holocaust survivors. He has described them as enhanced fireworks. He says that, that that's all they are. Uh, and Israel has the most up-to-date weaponry, all provided by the United States, uh, some of it illegal under international law, that it uses when it of the Gaza Strip. So no one needs to demonize Israel. BDS doesn't need to do it. Um, I certainly don't need to do it. Israel is doing a fine job of demonizing itself. Mm-hmm. I think Absolutely. there was another. Com- were there some other comments? I think I heard. Are uh, you guys? Any comments from the no. panel? No. no. All right. Well, it, so it, 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 oh, go go ahead. Just that she said uh, that's about the comparison to Israel and South Africa. Um, South African oh, yeah. politicians have said that what's happening in Israel is far worse than whatever happened in South Africa. So yeah. uh, Mrs. Mrs. Clinton can talk all she wants to do. The, the facts are not the worst. Oh, can you say that last bit again? I didn't catch that. I, I said... Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton has said that comparisons of Israel to South African to South African apartheid are wrong and should, should end. But even uh, politicians in South Africa have said yeah. that what's happening in Israel is worse than whatever happened in South Africa. Yeah, that's what really gets me because I've heard I've heard those politicians say that uh, the South African ones, and so for her to come out mm-hmm. and write that that it's wrong. And it's, mm-hmm. it's it just I can't even believe it. She is just you know I I don't really like um, Donald Trump, but I can't I can't stand mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton either. I mean it's just it's so <laughs> it's so sad and like and ang- and it just makes me so angry that the all these candidates are just such rotten people. I mean Hillary Clinton is just it's such true. a liar and a killer, and yet I, and, and to fascist. see that. Yeah, and to see people actually supporting her and thinking that there's anything good about this woman, it just, um, well, it gets to me. But um, mm-hmm. just to, so, I mean, we, we we tend to be equal opportunity bashers here, so we should probably um, talk a bit about Trump, too, and the, the Republicans. But did you have anything else to say on that, okay. uh, Bob? Yeah, I, I, I actually have another article today on Counterpunch. 
uh, and it's about uh, Bernie uh, Sanders and Jill Stein. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at this point, I'm voting for Jill Stein, but that's who is going to get my vote. Uh, but it talks about them. And one of the things that I, I didn't mention the article is we look at the Democratic side, and, and we have Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders running uh, for the Democratic nomination. And we look at the whole list of Republicans running. And is this the best that the United States has to offer? People who will either appeal to the most base instinct of the extreme, extreme ends of the spectrum, uh, or, or people who are bought and paid for by corporations and lobbies. Is, is, this, the, is this it? The United States is not a democracy. It's an oligarchy. It's run by the rich, and this is, this is who they offer. But I guess enough of that. As you said, let's move on to the Republicans, equal opportunity bashers. Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, so... I'll, I'll just start with it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, mm-hmm. I, just a couple of comments about Mr. Trump. Uh, he has said, you know, it's hard to know exactly where to start with his remarks. Uh, he has said that Muslims should not be allowed in the country until they can be thoroughly checked out by the, the government. Uh, why, why do we live in a society where that statement is tolerated? And apparently when he, after he said it, his polling went up, uh, went up significantly. Uh, he has said we, uh, with the Bo Bergdahl, with a uh, U.S. serviceman who, who deserted in, I believe, Afghanistan, and he was held for five years and released about a year ago. And Mr. Trump had said that he should be shot and that if he were there, he would shoot him himself. Now, we don't know all circumstances about that gentleman's departure from the military, about his desertion. So I, I am really concerned that uh, Mr. Trump is willing to set himself uh, up as judge, jury, and executioner in this and in any other case. So uh, he, he's troubling on just so many fronts. Well, seeing um, seeing Donald Trump, you know, just his popularity, you know, it really just strikes me as this um, that we're living in this really warped reality. I couldn't see, you know, him being as popular. Um, you know, you take you take him and put him, you know, travel back in time twenty years, and you know, I, I doubt that the American uh, population would be as receptive. Um, as they are now, you know, it seems that we've devolved to such a point mm-hmm. that, you know, people are so fearful. Um, you know, he's tapping into, you know, like you said earlier, you know, these really base uh, aspects of people, and you know, uh, and you know, it, it it just seems that that that's kind of the climate that we're seeing. Um, that you know, there there is a fertile ground, I guess, for. You know the likes of Donald Trump to be popular. He's he he seems to be able to tap into you know those things in ways that you know uh, many of the other candidates don't. Um, you know they they kind of have mm-hmm. uh, this regular pol- uh, political veneer that you know people are very used to. Um, but just you know his his uh, his speech, the way he talks to people, the way he talks. Uh, you know it, it just it's, yeah. it's such a very um, base uh, 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 way of speaking, and you know it's it's very frightening 
I think that you know he has uh, reached such popularity and kind of speaks to um, you know just how low uh, America has, has has gotten. Yes, I, I I agree with what you're saying, and you mentioned 20 years old, and possibly it's a little longer than that, but around that time, uh, he would not have been so accepted. There's been such polarization since then, and I think part of that is uh, based on fear and. When a, when a population is very fearful, they'll let the government do anything. They'll let the government uh, listen to our telephone calls and read our emails. They will let the uh, government wage wars, which are very profitable for a few people uh, around around the country, around the uh, world. They wage wars around the world, and I think that's what is happening. I, I think it is is purposeful that people are fearful. There's always the United States always has an enemy uh, in the the latter half of the 20th century, it was communism. There was fear that oh, the communists are going to take over. There's a communist hiding in every closet and hiding under every bed. And that was that was a big fear. So the United States had to have a uh, huge military budget and also would go and invade countries who had even a leftist government because that was at risk of communism. So after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, the the Cold War really ended. Communism was no longer something to be threatened, to be to be uh, fearful of. So we kind of kind of stumbled around with the enemy, and has now decided on Islam as uh, the the big bad wolf that needs to be defeated. Now they don't say it's Islam always, although Donald Trump will say that, and some other people say that. The government says it's ISIS and. Uh, Islamic radicals, but it's still it's still demonizing an entire huge religion. But uh, the point is, and I think it was Elon who's just speaking. I think uh, Shane. Uh, Shane. 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 I'm sorry. Uh, I think the point is that the the country has devolved into a point where so many people in the U.S. are willing to uh, to go with their their fears and support a candidate who who represents the worst of of their fears and their and the worst of their their feelings that Muslims are all murderers and that uh, the only thing we can do is is kill them before they kill us and you have a Donald Trump coming out and not saying those exact words but saying we should keep Muslims out of the country and they need to be investigated they need to be uh, watched and this sort of thing and that's that's what people are buying into, and it's it's really tragic. It does not bode well for the U.S. No, you, you know what's. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I was just thinking, you know, in a sense, and I think this is a point that you make in a number of your articles um, and your most recent one, Bob, is that, uh, you know, at at the end of the day, um, even if you compare um, Trump to Clinton. I mean, if if Trump is bombastic and saying all these things uh, and kind of riling up the the Islamophobia and the xenophobia, uh, Clinton is no better in her quieter, less rhetorical way. And it it just seems like all of the policies that she would help perpetuate um, that it began under uh, Bush and Obama would just be continued, enforced, perpetuated, 
and at the end of the day, amount to the same kinds of things that that I believe um, we'd see geopolitically and policy-wise coming from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I agree completely. Uh, Hillary Clinton is attempting to run on uh, as as the person who will maintain Obama's legacy. Well, that means more drone strikes. That means more uh, bombing of the various countries in the Middle East. It means continued support for uh, Israeli apartheid. Uh, she had said when she was running for president eight years ago, she said that if uh, Iran ever bombed or invaded or attacked Israel in any way, she would obliterate Iran as, as president. Now, one has to remember that Iran is a pop, is a country with, a, like any other country, there's a huge number of, of children and young adults, and people are just going about their business. For her to make that statement, which I'm sure she was honest and sincere about, is really frightening. Uh, Trump will... So I think the point that, that you've made is very good, that whether it's Trump or Clinton being elected president, we're going to see much of the same things. There will be some subtle differences in some social policies, but as far as foreign policy is concerned, it will be a continued disaster. And it seems like there will be an escalation of it, too, for them to be that hot-tempered, um, to react that way, not politically, I mean, not have some diplomatic a solution first to just bomb Iran? It seems like there'd be an escalation yes. if either one of them were elected. I think so, because the, they're both people who believe might makes right, and they want to be control, in control of the as far as military power is concerned, a country on the planet. And so if they don't like something that Iran does or that Afghanistan does or that Brazil or anyone else does, they can just uh, press their buttons and, and bomb that country. And that's very frightening to have someone. The United States is not known for uh, its diplomatic finesse. Uh, really in, its, in its history, has it chosen diplomacy over, over war. And uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, represent the worst of that and, and were perpetuated. Yeah. Well, what, watching this, um, <clears throat> this, just the political circus, you know that that the um, U.S. presidential elections is, you know, it's 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 mind-numbing, and you know, it's not always something that you really want to, uh, you know, to, to watch the debates or anything. You know, it, it's all a circus. But what strikes me mm-hmm. is just just the um, the amount of violent statements that that are coming out of the mouths of these people like it it's really mm-hmm. striking cuz like that seems to be kind of their uh their their prime directive is just this violence yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, shane um just yeah bob let me let me just read something from sure. an article you wrote you wrote this last year in september um so this article was for Mint Press, and it's titled Land of the Prejudiced, Home of the Bigoted, America's Long History of mm-hmm. Hatred Continues. And so you start the article with a quote from Andrea Tantaros of Fox News. And um, yes. we we featured like some particularly egregious statements of hers uh, on the show you know, several months ago. But in this one, she writes, or she, uh, she said, um, if you study the history of Islam, our ship captains were getting murdered. The French had to tip us off. I mean, these were the days of Thomas Jefferson. 
They've been doing the same thing. This isn't a surprise. You can't solve it with a dialogue. You can't solve it with a summit. You solve it with a bullet to the head. It's the only thing these people understand. So this is just an example of, like Shane was saying, the, the type of mm -hmm. violent statements that you'll get out of some people in the not only the political establishment but the the media and the, particularly the right wing mm -hmm. media, um, which is it just it just shows I think that that this is the real sentiment that's kind of bubbling under the surface in a lot of cases and and sometimes it comes out in, a, in an in an explicit statement like this, but um, when mm -hmm. you have when you have statements from people who may be in some context considered more moderate, um, like, so, for example, you'll have the people that say, oh, well, it's not ISIS, it's, or it's not Islam, it's just ISIS, you know, we're not against all Muslims, it's just militant Islam. It seems like these are just um, platitudes, they're kind of these meaningless statements that that on the surface they appear moderate, they appear kind of um, as if there's some kind of like reason or um, even some kind of goodwill or understanding of the situation. But underneath, the, the message is that, like you were saying, that it, it is Islam and that Muslims as a people are not quite human. And this is the, this is the sentiment that is, is going on all over the place. We have, in the past year, in the past well, particularly in the past year, but in the past decade and more, we've had this increase in this anti-Islam feeling and opinions and action. We've had um, attacks on Muslims, um, so um, like attacks of hate and and just ad, like utter and explicit bigotry that is coming that is popping up all over the place, not just in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it seems like this is a big. Um, dynamic it's a big trend that is only going to to continue to get worse and um well you in that same article where you quoted uh this andrea tantaros uh you wrote in response um that you know what would the reaction be if a news commentator said that the only thing jews understand is a bullet to the head and that I mean, that just gets to the to the heart of the matter, I think, because there are so many statements that you'll, that you'll read in the news, and even from the so-called moderates, where if you just replace mm -hmm. Muslims with Jews, it sounds like mm -hmm. something that you'd expect to, to read in a history of Nazi Germany about the kinds of things that the, that the Nazi party was saying about Jews at the time, which would be totally unacceptable today, and it would be immediately um, um, criticized rightly um, if something like that were said about about Jews today, but because it's Muslims, it seems like it's okay and people get away with it, um, which it, it, it's just it's totally unacceptable and it 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 well it boggles my mind that it is so accepted among uh, among just society in general that there isn't such a, more of an outcry against it and more of an awareness that this is the same thing that that went down in Germany in the 30s. And I, I just can't believe how people cannot see the parallels and see the road that they're on and, uh, you know, and where this could lead. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, say, I, I believe in that article. I also mentioned a woman who named Davis at the moment, who a Muslim woman was on a plane and was refused an open uh, can of, uh, of soft drink. Yeah. 
many people criticized her, and no one no one came to her defense. So this this sentiment isn't just there's a reason the politicians are are exploiting it because it is real. People are believing that uh, in this this anti-Islam culture they're they're buying into it. They they are it's, it's being fostered. Uh, you mentioned also the fact that people just aren't seeing the parallels to Nazi Germany, and as as that all came to a head, and the uh, separate the, the separation and the harassment and the uh, the assaults and all that, and it is it is exactly the same. Brings up another parallel, Harrison, and that's that uh, after World War II, uh, the society said never again because they had. Uh, mm-hmm. Withstood horrific, uh, hor- horrific genocide during during that period, Nazi Germany. But don't Israelis see that by having separate streets for Palestinians, separate laws for Palestinians, but being able to uh, assault, harm, and kill Palestinians with impunity is exactly what they suffered from a generation ago. And yet they let they let mm-hmm. it continue. We don't learn from history. I don't know why, but but we don't. Well, speaking of history, um, I just want to come back to your book, um, Empire, Racism, mm-hmm. and Genocide. Um, now, as a as a Canadian myself, um, I was aware of some of the, kind of the shared history. Of course, Canada has its own legacy of um, its responsibility for and you know policies towards the the natives at the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, early in Canada's history, and but there were some of yeah. some kind of wars and other events and policies that you mentioned in your book that you know I hadn't heard of before. Um, you know, I didn't have an extensive education on American politics growing up in Canada. Um, but one of the kind of illusions that your book shatters, I think, is that there that there was ever a time when U.S. history was nice and rosy. Uh, I mean, it's right there in the title of your book, Empire, Racism, and Genocide. That pretty much covers the entire history mm-hmm. of the United States, and that goes right back to the beginning. Um, so maybe could you give just some examples from American history um, that show just how far back these policies go, and then maybe we can get to um, kind of just a parallel to today and how nothing really has changed. Okay, so we have to. First, I want to mention... You said that as a Canadian growing up, you didn't get much uh, education in U.S. history. I, I need to tell you that Americans, United States growing up, don't get much U.S. history. They get the, the whitewashed yeah. version that says, you know, we're land of the free and home of the brave and that and that that myth, that nonsense. But going back as far as the, the War of 1812, the, uh, at that time, Manifest Destiny, well, it was a little bit before Manifest Destiny, but there was a belief in the United States, it was also very much the press eventually began to manifest destiny that the United States somehow was given North America, and that as the frontier moved from the first 13 original colonies on the East Coast and moving to the Midwest and so on, uh, taking Florida, taking Texas from Mexico, <clears throat> that Canada was also going to be part of the United States. The War of 1812. Uh, was waged with that purpose, and partly because uh, U.S. business felt there was a huge market for uh, for its goods, and it could it could produce goods, uh, furs and so on, 
I think in Canada that, that could then sell. So it was very much business oriented. And as far as what the Canadians wanted, as usual, that didn't have uh, that didn't play into their uh, into their their formulations at all. Uh, moving moving on to the, the Mexican American War, uh, where in the U.S. gained uh, a huge part of Mexico, Texas uh, was again the U.S. wanted more property uh, because they uh, wanted to expand, and it was it was for money, more more farmland. Cotton was was uh, becoming a huge uh, huge industry, and more land was needed for that. Well, Texas was sorry. So uh, that's that's kind of from the early early part of the uh, the country's history. But even when we look at more later wars, uh, it's important to know that prior to World War II, the U.S. was doing all kinds of business with uh, Germany, despite the atrocities that Germany had already started committing, uh, and that during the war, and this is this is detailed in my book, and the references are all there. Uh, there, there's a trading a law called the Trading with the Enemies Act. So any company that wants to do business with a country, with a, co- a company in a country that is at war with, has to get permission from the U.S. government. Well, during World War II, countries got that permission to, uh, sorry, many companies in the U.S. were allowed to do business with Axis uh, companies in Axis countries. So as a result. Uh, the U.S. was providing telecommunications support to uh, Germany, to Nazi Germany, was providing uh, parts for trucks that were being used uh, in the German war against the United States, against the Allies. So also after the war, Ford Motor Company, who, who had a factory in Germany that had been bombed, sued the United States and received damages for the bombing of that, of that factory. So it all boils down to uh, business or power, and who dies in the in the in the pursuit of of those those twin gods doesn't really matter much to the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Bob, um, you wrote an article, uh, "The U.S. Feeding the War Machine," where you describe um, some of these things. You also included. Um, uh, ITT and um, Ford Motor Company, Standard Oil of California, all doing business with Germany. And um, Mm -hmm. when I was a teenager, I read uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which was uh, about a a soldier who's coming to terms with the insanity of war. And there's a character in it named Mm -hmm. Milo who, uh, who is effectively, you know, bombing his own air base um, because he was paid to do so um, by the enemies of um, his his air forces. And, uh, okay. you know, I, I, I didn't understand at the time, even though I thought it was bizarre, that that's exactly, in a sense, um, what exists. The Catch-22 is real. Uh, this dynamic mm-hmm. is, is uh, a reality. Um, so, you know, putting the facts out there as you did in that article really kind of brings home, uh, just how insane, uh, this, 
uh, collusion is um, between big business, the military-industrial complex, um, and and our so-called mm-hmm. enemies. Yes, yes, and it, it's it's generational. This is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on as long as the United States really has existed. Uh, this this collusion between uh, business and power. Uh, and it is the military-industrial complex uh, on steroids. Well, a little earlier, Bob, <clears throat> you had mentioned uh, Manifest Destiny, and uh, that's the first part yes. of um, of your book. And, you know, it, it seems that, you know, th- this idea of um, that America, you know, has this God-given right to expand you know in the in the early years it was just you know on in within north america within what would become mm-hmm. uh, the united states but it seems that that same idea um has also developed into a foreign policy although it's not called that anymore it's it's now called you know just spreading democracy and freedom it's it's essentially mm-hmm. the same thing yes and what what we what we hear a lot about now is American exceptionalism. So except, I, I, I've referred to American exceptionalism as the bastard spawn of manifest destiny, that uh, you know, we, the United States, is going to spread its particular brand of democracy throughout the world, whether the world wants it or not. Uh, you mentioned that initially manifest destiny was just in the continental, in North America. I think it was uh, Theodore Roosevelt, when he was Secretary of War, I think I'm Secretary of of Defense now, same thing. He was desperate for the United States to become a great uh, military power and especially uh, a naval power. So when the uh, battleship Maine blew up in Havana Harbor in 1898 or 1899, that was his opportunity to uh, to start to spread, was still North America, but start to spread outside of the continental, uh, you know, to, to a, a different part of, the, of, of North America. And that was when we might look at the beginning of uh, going into another country and, and invading. There's been a lot since then, certainly, but that was one of the earlier ones. Early, early episodes of doing that, but I do think uh, this this spreading of democracy, which is the kind of a buzz phrase that is used fairly frequently these days, uh, is part of manifest destiny. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, you know I'm just thinking about uh, your book and and all of the uh, all of these kinds of um, seeds that. Uh, that have been planted at these imperialist um, tendencies that uh, that are outlined for, in your book, and mm-hmm. um, I, I think Bob that many of us see the events of 9/11 as this really strong shift in uh, U.S. foreign policy, as as Shane was alluding to, towards imperialism. But one thread that seems to run through your work is that imperialism is in the U.S.'s very DNA and that nothing really has mm-hmm. changed uh, in the life of the U.S. as a nation. 
and that these seeds uh, that we're seeing were planted a long time ago and nourished and grown for quite a while. And so um, mm-hmm. what I wanted to ask you is uh, how how do you describe or or uh, redefine the events of the last 15 years in the U.S. Um, in the context of, of all of this history that the U.S. has uh, of being imperialistic? Is it like the... Um, okay. Is it like the flowering? The the is it its apogee? Is it its its last, you know, uh, its last hurrah? Well, uh, I I wish it were. I think the events of nine eleven and the following as uh, an opportunity for imperialism to to reflourish. Following the Vietnam War, there was lots of talk about the U.S. needing to uh, learn lessons of that war, to only go to war as a last resort, uh, to only put young Americans in mobile danger if there was absolutely no other um, other alternative. Well, that doesn't sit well with uh, the powers that be. They need to have, the the government of the U.S. needs to show the rest of the world that the U.S. is the strongest, the biggest, the baddest, and uh, don't mess with the U.S. And having those uh, those comments following the Vietnam War did not help to that. So there were a few incursions uh, between, in, in the last part of the uh, 20th century, uh, there was a grenade and a few others, uh, which I'd like to get into a little bit of detail later. But it wasn't until the United States was actually attacked on 9-11 that the government had a real strong reason to instill fear into the uh, into the hearts of the American citizens. The United States had been attacked. One of the one of the symbols of the country, the World Trade Center, had been completely destroyed. The Pentagon had had a plane flown into. Uh, we were in grave danger and needed to. Uh, destroy those who had <clears throat> who, were, who were threatening the United States. That, that turned out to be Afghanistan and Iraq. <clears throat> Interesting that Iraq was and Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban was had forbidden an oil pipeline to go through the country. Uh, that's just coincidental, right? So anyway, uh, so I think that the last <clears throat> 15 or 16 years have represented uh, an opportunity for this uh, refocusing or re- reemergence of the U.S. as the world's policeman, uh, who will uh, go to any any means to uh, achieve its goals. It's a it's a a sad event, but it enabled the government to focus on Islam as the enemy and scare population and bring us to where we are today, which is not a good place to be. <laughs> well, Here, uh, uh, guys, just hold on a sec. Yeah. We may have a caller, so I'm just going to see. Um, so, caller, are you on the line? Uh, yes, I'm here. This is Stephen, Orlando area. Hi, Stephen. How are you Hi, doing? Hi, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Good. I, I, have, I have some comment, and um, I, I appreciate this uh, your guest work and, and the focus, but 
you know, it's kind of, uh, I'm a working class person. I'm 52 years old. I, w- I work manual hard labor. And um, I do work that the uh, people that are here undocumented, uh, they won't even do it. We, I get in lakes, cold water, dirty, and um, wages haven't risen for 25 years. And um, so when I hear this stuff about Trump, you know, I was alarmed by Trump's, uh, his um, scapegoating, his, his brash comments. And so, but I look at it from uh, also, like, what are people thinking, you know, in general? I work with uh, wealthy people, working class, poor, across the Hispanic people, black people. And um, I've developed kind of a theory, and um, I believe that everybody really knows down deep about the imperialism, and that, but we're, we're bombarded with the big lie every day from cradle to grave. And um, you, don't, you don't counter that. You don't spout off and, and say that it's not true because you need to work. You need to be uh, held in esteem with connections so you can develop money. And um, that's just what rolls. And I believe that most people, I really believe that most people, um, even the ones that might say something kind of like against a Muslim, I believe most people know in their heart of heart that they're just like everybody else. But you kind of go along with it. And I don't, but I'm just saying people kind of just go along with it because the focus on the Muslim is all about keeping you from focusing on the quality of your life and the fact that you're losing you're losing pace, the fact that your kids aren't going to be able to, you know, afford a house and are sleeping in your basement. So I believe that all of this just continues on and everything just gets incremental, be a little bit worse, a little bit worse. But then Trump comes out, and the thing about Trump, a lot of anger from people, um, like especially white working class people that are like lower lower middle class to working class because they know what's going on. They've allowed, they've um, funded terror terror wars, supported dictatorships in Central America, Guatemala, you know, El Salvador, Mexico. We support a horrendous government there, oppression of it. So all these people, they pass NAFTA. So people are squeezed down there. They come here. They fill construction jobs. So wages don't rise. And um, I find it remarkable that the way they tamp down the uh, the, the direct hatred against uh, migrants here, because they're in construction, they're in every industry. And it's um, and I'm not advocating any kind of like stoking hatred, but at the same time, you know, your average working class guy, he listens to liberals that are more concerned about the rights of migrant people that are here without papers than his own well-being. And then that's perfect fodder for somebody like Trump to spout off a few comments, not go deep, not develop any policy programs, but just spout off a few things. And um, and then it's like, yeah, that guy, he gets it. He gets where I'm coming from, right? And um, And I'll just say this. You know, the liberals, the liberals and the intellectual left, I don't even read them anymore. I don't like them. Um, I don't like them just as much as I don't like the right-wing intelligentsia. They just all suck. They make money. 
by spouting off crap, getting, if you're a worker, oh, you want to be scared of Republican, blah, 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 and drama, drama, and it's all about diverting your attention because we're all separated. Unions are destroyed. There's no solidarity movements where people across the spectrum can come together and do something more brilliant. And we're just all disgusted, and we focus on the stupid TV shows and the, you know, I don't need, and uh, most people tune out of politics, you know, and they, Hillary sucks. Trump's just a, you know, my opinion, he's kind of a creepy oligarch who knows what he wants. But the thing is, is that um, everybody knows that we're, there's a big lie about, like, we're here, freedom, blah, blah, blah. They know it's a big lie. And people really know it, but they just don't articulate it because to do so would put you totally on the outs. Whether you're a white kind of yuppie type or you're working, it will totally put you on the outs. But I really believe that most people are intelligent enough to know what's going on. We're fearful. I don't think most people, like, focus on or hate Muslims. And I know that people like Trump, he used it to his advantage to position himself to the right of all the other Republican candidates. And um, we're just in a horrible position right here. And um, I believe that the, uh, the financialization of the economy, everything is going to totally collapse. And it's only when everything collapses that people can come together and do something different because they have to. And um, all of the big fear-mongering and that dynamic isn't going to hold sway anymore. And um, also one last comment. Most people, man, that think they know that the propaganda against Russia, they just don't, they don't buy into it. But um, the more people are connected to these parties and, and they watch MSNBC or Fox the lib- on the liberal side or the conservative, they, they, buy the, they buy the catechism, you know, they buy into it, you know, and, they, and it's, uh, it's just a freaking shell game. It's just a farce. And, um, and I'll just say one more thing about Trump. I really don't believe he's a Muslim hater. I don't believe he's an immigrant hater. I believe he's a calculator, and, and as much as uh, he's a P.T. Barnum carnival barker, and he knows that he knows the he knows what buttons to hit, and he hit them. And um, so the thing is that people would vote for Trump just because they're so disgusted with the, the establishment two-party duopoly that they're just a hope that maybe this guy would go in there and shake things up. And I would say this because I'm very concerned about Russia and stoking imperialist wars. I believe that Trump would probably be the, the least inclined to go that route. And um, I'm not saying I'm going to vote for him, but uh, if it became between him and Hillary, I would probably vote for Trump, to be honest with you. Not because, because I don't really think he's like Adolf Hitler. I just think he came out and said some brash things just to position himself. And um, Hillary's just very, very scary imperialist. And I can see her getting us into a nuclear war. So anyway, that's all I really had to say. And I enjoyed listening to the rest of y'all comments, unless you have any questions for me. Nothing for me. Thanks, uh, thanks for, thanks uh, for uh, everything th- you Thank you. I, I'd like to just make a comment. I, I agree with much of what this uh, this caller has said. A couple things that stand out, that the uh, focusing on of uh, does keep people from focusing on what's really important in their lives. 
They have to be fearful. They have to be looking over their shoulder for the, the next immigrant who's going to come and take their job away or the next Muslim is going to come and bomb them. This is what, what they're, they're being told. So they don't look at the real issues of the day. Uh, the concept of the big lie that the caller mentioned, uh, which is actually Hitler defined that as saying, this is a paraphrase, that uh, people in general tell small white lies every day and wouldn't imagine that the government would tell a huge lie, but the government does. But they, they buy it because they just can't imagine anyone telling a lie of that, those proportions. And we, we do see a lot of that, too. Uh, and uh, the caller referred to Donald Trump as a carnival barker, and I think that's a very apt description. I'd like to say one more thing. Um, you know what I try on GP2, you know what I find the most depressing thing? I've always like, instinctively supported unions. I'm a working-class guy, even though I have some college education. I never went into that profession. But the thing is the most sad, it's just sad, is the, the, the total lack of uh, unity. Should have union. Um, Hello. Yeah. Okay. Hey, breaking up a little bit, Stephen. Yeah, uh, we didn't. We didn't catch any of that. I didn't get the last oh, call. Yeah, I think I we lost him. Call. All right. Bye bye. Yes. Sir. So, yeah, sorry, Stephen, you were breaking up there. So, uh, That's okay. Y'all take care. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for calling. Well, uh, one one point that uh, Stephen touched on uh, was that, you know, uh, that there can't be this, this segment of the population that, you know, they, they on a, maybe on an unconscious level, they do recognize, you know, the, the mechanisms that are going on and, you know, I think that I think that that can be true, but I think for um, most of the population, and you know, just looking back at the United States, the history of the United States, you know, it does show that there is this. Um, I think this unconscious uh, hatred um, that these politicians do tap into. And you know, it, and it's so easy to manipulate, and that you know, the, they they just put on this this veneer of um, just kind of just just manufacturing these ideas that you know what what the U.S. policy is 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 based on good and you know these high sounding principles, when really what's underneath that and is driving it. Is this racism um, and you know this 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 uh, distinction from um, you know the, the dominant culture from from others uh, you know from from the native you know it started out right from the beginning of um, of U.S. history with uh, when I think you wrote about it in in your book which is you know how how the uh, Native Americans were portrayed, which was you know the, the they they were savages, and you know they they, right. they were backward mm-hmm. and and you know it, and I think that that does tap into some you know something perhaps it's unconscious I don't know um, but there is something there that's very scary uh, within the majority of the population I think that that you know uh, 
is is a major driving um, force in in the creation of these these policies that end in just these horrific acts of of genocide and and just imperialism yeah. and you know and so on. Mhm. Mhm. And that's I, I agree with that. And it, it's happened time and time again uh, when people came from China to work on uh, some various huge road projects. They were horribly discriminated against. Uh, when uh, people of Irish descent started coming to the United States in large numbers, they were they were discriminated against. Um, Catholic priests were killed. Catholic churches were the Irish Catholic churches were burned. That sort of thing. It's been true with just about every uh, every ethnic group that has, for one reason or another, come to the United States. Uh, and it's, we're seeing it today with the prejudice against uh, Syrians and others who are who are fleeing the bombing of their home and trying to take their families to a safe place, and, and still they're they're rejected and criticized, and uh, we're told to be afraid of them. So yeah, I think, I think it's a point well taken. Well, Meg, uh, did you have something to say about the refugee crisis? Maybe we can go on to that topic. Yeah, as you guys were talking, I mean, I've been thinking about Palestinians, and I think about you know Nazi, the Jews in Nazi Germany, and now the refugees. It just seems like it's the same demonization that's going on. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've re- I was reading about Denmark and Germany and the, the way they're handling uh, the refugee crisis, and it just it just screams you know Nazi Germany. Um, one of the, it's in southern Germany, I think it's called the Baden-Württemberg, I can't pronounce that very well, but they're confiscating cash and valuables, they're confiscating jewelry. Um, one of the news reports on the bill said they confiscated about four figures from each refugee. Um, and the same thing with the Danish government, they have camps outside the cities, they're building tents for single male immigrants. Um, I mean, it just, it just, the comparison um, and the escalation, if you think about Palestine right now being one of the worst places to live in the world, it's like these refugee camps are going to be popping up all over Europe are just going to be a mirror image of that. I mean, I, do, do you, yeah. I know you see those parallels, but um, it's pretty disturbing to see how overt um, it is, and nobody is really recognizing it for what it is. It, it, is, it is disturbing, and it, as I mentioned before, we don't learn from history. We don't learn that that this is just wrong. Uh, that these are human beings. Certainly, any any group of any large group is going to have some people in it who are have antisocial tendencies or criminal tendencies. That that's true. You get a random 50 people in the room, and you'll you'll probably have that. But to say that these people, because they're from Syria or because they're from Pakistan, uh, need to be Ostracized, need to be kept in a refugee camp with fences around them and that sort of thing, simply because they're Syrian or, Pal- or Pakistani or, or whoever it is, uh, is just wrong. And don't people see that this is what was done a generation ago, that everyone after the fact was horrified by it, said how wrong it was, and said, how could we have ever done this, and now we're doing the same thing all over again. I, I don't I don't get it. A, a I don't either. <laughs> it does, I mean, it just doesn't yeah. make sense to me. I can see the, you know, we can call it good and evil, but you can see the evil behind it. But it's like, you know, Trump, Palin, Hillary Clinton, um, in the European leaders, it's like 
they are giving citizens a free pass to hate somebody, whether it's Palestinians, whether yeah. it's Syrians, whether it's they're refugees, and it's just hate and violence and hate and mm-hmm. violence. It's a common thread, you know, feeding this mm-hmm. distraction. You know, it's better to hate the Muslims and worry about the fact that, you know, you might lose your home. You know, that's, that's, right. I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, better, it's better to hate the Muslims and worry about the fact that you might lose your home due to corrupt banking practices. Right. You know, that, that's kind of abstract. You can't really get your hands around that, but you can see someone wearing... Uh, a burqa. Oh, I, I need to be afraid of that. It, it's just, right. you know, people people don't think they can do anything about about the banking crisis, that, which is really ongoing. Uh, but they they see someone wearing a burqa, or they hear someone speaking Arabic. Oh, that's the enemy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I read an article. I guess it was about a month or so ago in Austin, Texas. There was a a Muslim student walking from the university with headphones on, and he was physically assaulted because somebody yeah, thought he was that. talking to ISIS on their headphones. And that is the most re- – who does that? I mean, you know, only in America, I guess, <laughs> um, people do that. Right. Um, really? But, this, yeah. It's ridiculous. This is a university student who assaulted him, apparently. What, what, yeah. what has this person learned in his education? I don't know. Just, I yeah, think that we are learning. They're learning from their leaders. I, I read somewhere. I don't remember who it was, but they say that you know, people, citizens of a society, follow their leaders. And I think that our citizens are following mm-hmm. our leaders. And I think it's happening on a global yeah. scale, excluding Russia, who, who seems to have some dignity and respect for international law and human rights. But um, it's I don't know. <laughs> uh. But that that brings up another topic, uh, and a question I have to everyone who's running for president on the Democratic Republican side. Uh, Meg, you mentioned international law. Well, Israel is in violation of international law because of the occupation and because of the blockade. Uh, the United Nations has uh, issued sanctions against Israel more than it has for any other uh, country. But all of the Politicians in the U.S. still support Israel completely. So where is their respect for international law? Where is their respect for human rights, for self-determination, for human dignity? So if they're willing to overlook the crimes of Israel, what other crimes will they be willing to overlook? And this, I think, is is quite frightening. And if they're they're willing to countenance violation of international law, what international laws will they violate? Yeah. Well, it seems like, um, you know, having a value for something like international law, uh, real ethics, real morals, uh, an understanding of what they really mean in practicality, what they would look like, uh, is is largely lost on most people. And uh, getting back for a moment to your question earlier in the show, Bob, um, you know, you said that uh, Israel... You know, would would say never again, um, but then goes around and acts with such egregious hypocrisy towards the Palestinians in not recognizing uh, the similarity between how it treats Palestinians and how Jews were treated during World War II. I mean, occasionally we read stories about, um, you know, uh, some 
um, a Holocaust survivor saying, hey, th- this is kind of the same. You know, what are we doing? Yes. Or we have, mm-hmm. or we have some, uh, you know, some conscientious uh, objectors in the IDF who, who come out and, and uh, relate their stories about, you know, war crimes that, that are being committed um, and they're being asked to commit. But um, mm-hmm. so where, you know, where, where are the, you know, we, Meg brought up a good point, and, and that is that so many people in Israel and in the U.S. are these authoritarian followers um, who just follow the lead of, of what they're being told and don't question anything in any significant or deep way. And, of course, you know, as you mentioned at the top of the show, there there is so little, there's so much whitewashing in history that, you know, we're, we're given so little understanding of, of what's actually happened in many of the most important historic events of the past few hundred years. Um, are there any other factors, do you think, that are keeping individuals so uh, so zombified to... Uh, the the realities of of um, persecution as we're seeing them today. I, I think there are a couple of of them, at least in the United in the context of the United States and Israel. And you mentioned that there are people who just follow their government, and, and many do. But then there are people who really feel that way, really feel that uh, Palestinians are subhuman, and and therefore they vote for uh, candidates who who will reflect that that belief. Uh, But I think that one of the things that the United States and Israel have in common is a feeling of exceptionalism. It's a little bit different for both, but it does exist. The United States feels that uh, it's the greatest country in the world, given uh, some kind of divine blessing to run the world in in the way it sees fit. Israel, on the other hand, sees itself as a perpetual victim, always, uh, always, Threatened, its very existence is always threatened by no matter what what happens, uh, and therefore it needs to protect itself, and it fosters that opinion among its uh, its citizens the same way the U.S. government fosters the concept of exceptionalism among its own citizens. Uh, I wrote an article that talked about uh, Israel's constant belief that anything is a threat to is a, is an existential threat to it. Uh, and you may recall that the International Soccer Foundation was considering uh, expelling it, and and that that Israel considered an existential threat. No matter what it is, they're threatened. So, in the same way that the U.S. is threatened, or was allegedly threatened in the uh, 50s and 60s by communism, and is now allegedly threatened by radical Islam, the Israel perpetuates a feeling that its country and its citizens are threatened by anything that criticizes them. Anything that criticizes Israel is anti-Semitic, they say, and uh, it's just a blanket, it's it's a knee-jerk reaction. So I think that while uh, people people are distracted by uh, things that the government is trying to be afraid of, that that's that's where this this following mentality, lending like mentality, following their leaders right over the cliff, if that's where they're going, uh, comes from these these they need to fear, or that they're they're the best there is. 
Well, it strikes me that you know this uh, this idea of exceptionalism in its different forms in in the U.S. and and in Israel, you know, it's um, you know, Israel has uh, you know, it's it's has a Zionist background, and you know, it does have um, it's almost it's it's like a secular religious idea um, that's both that's in both countries of. You know, like this idea of manifest destiny. You know, I think it, it originally has its roots, uh, if I remember correctly, you know, in England, and it was more of a religious idea. But these these ideas, um, these tenets, you know, they're they're completely devoid of any actual um, morality or um, you know anything connecting to what 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 could be. You know, a higher purpose for for mankind. You know, it's it's uh, and that's why I guess I, I you could call it this distorted secular religion. I don't I don't I don't even know you know how to explain it, but you know it, it's mm-hmm. uh, it, it's so prevalent and and then at the same time you know it seems that there's this projection um, on onto Muslims uh, towards their religion when really you know at the core. Um, it, it's it's from inside of uh, the minds of these these you know psychopaths that are running the show um, within you know U.S. and in Israel that you know it, it it's it's coming from them this this extremism is theirs really yes and, and you mentioned the lack of morality and manifest destiny doesn't have any uh, any real morality to it. But the interpretation of that by those who who adhere to it back in the day and those who, who believe in exceptionalism today is because the United States is somehow better and the people are somehow better and therefore they have the right to uh, force other companies to be better by their, by their definition of it. There is no morality. It's all twisted. But it's the same thing... Uh, we talk about the, the religious right or the Christian right in the United States, um, and that's they generally come out with statements and, and pronouncements and policies that Jesus Christ would certainly not recognize as anything his followers should be doing. But it's been perverted to to be what it is today. So I think that lack of morality that you mentioned is is key to the problem. Well, I just want to, since we're on the topic of Israel, I just want to bring attention to a couple of recent stories that have come out um, just in the past couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, apparently uh, France has come out, I believe it was France's foreign minister, um, has just said that France will recognize Palestine uh, basically if the peace process continues to fail. So um, they, if the... Of course, the peace process will fail, so we'll see if France mm-hmm. um, keeps up on their, yes. their statement regarding that. And just another curious item that was in the news this week, um, it came out that the U.S. and the U.K. Um, had hacked Israeli drones. Um, they did this from Cyprus during the last like, assaults on Gaza. Apparently, they were they were keeping an eye out for any possible attacks on Iran, but um, I just found it interesting that 
just the fact that this was published. So, I mean, there's whenever something like this gets revealed, it's usually for some kind of purpose, but um, that's the news. Mm-hmm. So U.S. and U.K. Um, were hacking into Israeli drones and basically stealing their feeds to see um, see what these drones were broadcasting, where they were flying, and what they were doing. Um, so, I don't know. It, it, along with that, I mean, I don't have the stories on hand, but just in the past couple weeks, mm-hmm. past few weeks, it seems, there have been more stories in in the news of countries or officials kind of, it seems, um, making public statements that are um, kind of a more objective view of, of Israel than we usually get. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Bob? Yes. Oh, I so do. <laughs> um, there, uh, you mentioned France saying that it will recognize Palestine if the peace process doesn't continue or doesn't succeed. I think it's important to know uh, that the United States has always been pushing negotiation. Now, as I've written in more than one article, negotiations between two parties can only succeed when each has something the other wants that can only that it can only obtain by surrendering something it has. Now, Israel takes what it wants from Palestine with complete impunity. So, what is there to negotiate? Palestine will say, no, you can't have this land, and Israel will say, well, take it anyway, and takes it. And the international community does nothing. So uh, there aren't going to be successful negotiations ever. So uh, we need to just move past that and, and accept that reality, which maybe France is finally doing. Now, the hatched drones I had not heard about, but that is very good news. Uh, and in general, different things that we're hearing from, from the world. For example, uh, Sweden's foreign minister, Margot Wallström, and I may not to pronounce your name correctly, uh, has called out the uh, Israel, said Israel may have committed war crimes, and that uh, actually the, the extrajudicial killing of Palestinians in Jerusalem needs to be investigated. So she has received death threats, and they're, they're being investigated and so on. But uh, now... Remember, what she has done is, as, as you know, uh, Palestinians have been either stabbing or attempting to stab uh, Israelis in Jerusalem. About 100 Palestinians have been killed. I think 19 uh, Israelis have been. So, again, very lopsided uh, death toll. And other countries, if someone attempts to stab a citizen, will arrest the uh, alleged perpetrator. Uh, Israel, regardless of their age, will, will just shoot them, shoot them dead. So yeah. uh, Ms. Wallstrom is saying that needs to be investigated because that's, that's uh, an international crime. So uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has said that, uh, she, that uh, Ms. Wallstrom is fostering terrorism. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And it's created a, uh, an international incident between Sweden and Israel. Now, we have to remember that Israel will never allow anybody into Gaza or the West Bank to investigate what's going on. And now, if Israel hadn't hide, I would think it would welcome any international investigations. Uh, but we are seeing this change uh, more and more. I did see just the other day that President Obama has uh, he's encouraged or, or sent a memo saying that this law that's been on the books for a number of years has to be enforced. And that's by saying that good produced by Israel in the West Bank have to state who their source is. 
because some people could find something that was made in, in uh, Israel was actually made in the West Bank using uh, stolen resources, which of course is a violation of international law. So that, that's another thing that's happening. So we are seeing, I think, a, a small shift. There are also articles about how uh, Israel is losing the bipartisan U.S. support uh, and that more and more people are siding with uh, Palestine over over Israel. This is a significant change. I think part of the reason this is happening, I do think that the invasion and bombing of the Gaza Strip in the summer of 2014 uh, was a turning point because between that bombing and the, the one previous, which was two years earlier, the amount of people who have access to social media has skyrocketed astronomically. So people aren't just getting their news anymore from Fox or MSNBC or, or excuse me, wherever else. They're actually getting it from people who have different viewpoints. All of the uh, news media in the United States, are, all of the, the main major news media is owned by a few corporations. So, of course, they they foster what they want want told, what they want the world to know. Um, people are hearing more due to social media. A couple of examples. Uh, there have been some fairly major demonstrations in New York, uh, New York City, by Orthodox Jews opposed to the occupation. So I never saw anything about those on any news station that, I, that I've watched, but I did hear about it on social media. I saw pictures of social media. So that's the sort of thing that we're hearing more of. And if people hear that and see that and know what's going on, understand what's going on, they're starting to uh, see things differently. <coughs> and much of the, well, much of the population will just be apathetic. They'll just worry about, uh, you know, their own, you know, putting food on the table, which is certainly an important thing. Those who are activists and who are learning more are the ones who are going to be able to make a difference. So it's kind of a long-winded answer, but I do think we are seeing a change, and it can't come soon enough for the Palestinians. Well, I uh, I agree I agree with you on the um, you know it did seem that there was that turning point in you know during the summer of the 2014 uh, bombing uh, of of Palestine, and and you know that that was just so egregious and so devastating that. You know that whatever Hasbro trolls that Israel could conjure up, you know it, that they couldn't they couldn't meet just the force of just how just how devastating, awful, and appalling that was for for the world to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that seems to be the you know a, a, a characteristic that we're seeing from Empire, you know, this past year. Um, or oh, you know. The, this past 365 days and more, it's just that you know both the U.S. and Israel are acting out in more and more egregious ways, and they just think that you know they they have they have the power and the control over people, and they don't see that people are seeing through that uh, through the lies, and you know they don't have people are turning more and more to. Uh, alternative media outlets because they're not getting any actual news, uh, you know, about the situation. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it's just not being covered. You know, particularly like with uh, with Syria, uh, nothing's being said mm-hmm. uh, about 
you know, what's really happening in Syria and, you know, the successes that, that Russia has had there. And people know that something's going on over there. So, you know, I think they're just uh, shooting themselves in the foot. Um, and, you know, just their, their delusions of power just are, are so um, so entrenched in their thinking that, you know, they, they don't... They, they, they don't see the possibilities where where they are screwing up, I think. Well, Shane, just let me interrupt you for a second. It looks <laughs> like we may have another caller. So, caller, you're on the line. Are you there? Hello. Okay. Hello. Are, do you have a question, or are you just listening in? That was Meg. Sorry, oh. <laughs> that means confusion. She, she just wanted to say hello. Okay, no, it looks like they're probably just listening in. So, go ahead, uh, Bob. Did you have any response to what Shane had to say? Uh, I just agree that. Uh, let me think. I, I had a, I had a thought. Uh, Sean, just just summarize your point. Uh, just that the you know both the U.S. and Israel are you know, acting yeah. out and pushing the envelope too far and that, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't think that they see themselves doing that, but other people do or are beginning yeah, to. It's, it's like like the bully who doesn't who doesn't think he's a bully. But mm. the rest of the you know, the rest of the kids on the school on the playground know know this person's a bully and sooner or later someone's going to to confront him. And right now the international community is starting to confront Israel. Um Israel has always relied on the U.S. to protect it in the U.S. Security Council over its veto power, and the United States has been very consistent in doing so. Now, of course, with the, regardless of who gets elected president, and <clears throat> at the end of this year, that will continue. <clears throat> president Obama has an opportunity to make some real changes in the last several months of his, his presidency. I don't think he will, certainly, but <clears throat> he could go down in the history as a president who made a significant difference in uh, peace in bringing peace to the Middle East, if he had the courage to do so, uh, it wouldn't be that difficult for him to do. But for whatever reason, he, he's not going to do it. Uh, but yes, I do agree that the United States and Israel have, are pushing their military power too far, and the world is getting set up. Well, the the other uh, big piece of news in past uh, weeks has been. Uh, Secretary UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon coming out in criticism of Israel and and basically mm-hmm. saying it as it is, saying that you know mm-hmm. how how can you not expect uh, the Palestinians to lash out in the way that they have, considering the the desperation and the suffering that they've been uh, inflicted with by Israel. And um, he's kind of uh, come out swinging, uh, which is an unusual development, kind of compelling um, N- Netanyahu to uh, to make statements in, in response. And you know, we can't we can't condone terrorism. You know, just the most banal uh, response right. you can you can make. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I I I was just. Um, you know, there's kind of a disconnect, though, with this peace process in Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, if you put that side by side next to what the U.S. has been doing in backing proxy forces in Syria 
destroying Iraq, putting NATO forces into Libya, and uh, and and uh, kind of facilitating the rise of ISIS in the Middle East. Um, in that, you know, the, Israel puts on this show. It seems. Uh, I mean, the U.S. puts on this show of, of engaging the peace process, and you even read some things occasionally. Um, that suggests that there is this sincere effort to get Netanyahu uh, to the table and really negotiate some kind of just and lasting um, uh, peace. So is that just uh, is that just a um, Bob? Do you think that's just a ruse? Is that just the U.S. kind of um, uh, fulfilling this? superficial role as as peacekeeper do you think that there's any kind i mean that, you know next to next to all the other what i'm saying is next to all the other damage that they're inflicting on the rest of the world mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i even i even keep up with this pretense of of caring about peace in in israel and, and palestine well and it is just a pretense because if the u.s were serious about Israel uh, actually bring them into the occupation, then it would eliminate or at least reduce the foreign aid it gives to Israel. Last year, it gave Israel uh, $3.8 billion in foreign aid in addition to uh, other military benefits that, that it provided. So if the U.S. were sincere about brokering uh, a peace agreement between Israel and Palestine, it could easily do it. So your question is, why does the U.S. continue to play lip service to that while it goes around bombing other parts of the Middle East? And that is, that is a good question. Uh, it wants to ignore uh, Israel and Palestine and just allow Israel to keep encroaching on Palestine and Palestinian land and still tell the United States that it is, tell citizens that it is protecting them from uh, terrorists because of the, quote, war on terror, and that's why they're bombing in Syria, but that they really want peace, and that's why they're always asking Israel Palestinians to come to the table and, and uh, negotiate. So it's, it's PR for the United States citizens, uh, something to help them feel good about what their government is doing, and they are seemingly all too willing to, uh, to, to buy into that. I, I wanted to make another point about negotiations. I, I about how uh, negotiations can be valid when each side has something other wants that can only be obtained by surrendering it. <laughs> but let's look at an analogy. If someone robbed a bank and everyone knew who the bank robber was, no one would suggest that the robber and the bank manager <coughs> excuse me, sit down together to determine how much money the bank robber was going to give back. The bank robber would be arrested, the money would be returned to the bank, and that would be the end of it. Israel, Palestine should, have to, should not have to negotiate with Israel about how much of the land Israel has stolen it's going to give back. <laughs> if we accept, and we can, this is another conversation, but if we accept the international standard that uh, Palestine and Israel consist of the pre-1967 war borders, then Israel has an international obligation to 
remove all of its citizens <coughs> from the West Bank who are there illegally in violation of international law, <coughs> and end the blockade. And that's what needs to be done. There's no need for negotiations. Just follow the law. Mm-hmm. Well, your Bob, your, your description of what um, one of those things that's happening in Israel right now reminded me of something else. You were talking about the mm-hmm. the stabbings that are going on and um, the kind of the call for an inquiry into into the I guess what we'd call the execution of these people with knives. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I saw a video a couple of weeks ago of one of these incidents of, of a young teenage girl. Um, I think I think it was two girls, but one of them, you know, had a knife and was dancing all over the place and threatening to to stab people. And then a pol- uh, an Israeli police officer just showed up and, like, shot her six times or something. Now, mm-hmm. um, it just, of course, reminded me of what's been going on in the States for years, and it seems increasingly now in the last couple of years uh, in the in these police executions of people on the streets mm-hmm. and and of course these are examples of that are that aren't even as i mean they don't even have as plausible an excuse as the Israeli police officers mm-hmm. many times um of course uh, you know there are examples or reports in Israel of um, uh, of incidents where the police will shoot and kill someone and then plant a knife on them to yes. in order to justify mm-hmm. the killing. Of course, we have the same thing mm-hmm. going on in the States, um, but oftentimes in the States it is just simply um, an execution where the person being shot and killed um, did not do anything wrong, had no weapon on them, um, didn't even mm-hmm. make any threatening moves. It seems like the the police training, the policy is to shoot like on site at the even the the hint or the suggestion or even the imagination of some kind of um, threat on the part of the of the person they're shooting, and then to empty their entire magazine into that person. Um, so this just seems like another another example and trend going on in American society that is just. Um, well, just first of all, totally wrong, and it needs to change, but doesn't seem to be changing, doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It seems to be a systematic thing, and with undertones and even overtones of racism, um, just the number of of black citizens who are shot in the streets and killed. um, What do you see going on in the States in regard to that? It it, it is uh, young black males have just become target practice for uh, the white police. It's it's horrific. In very rare occasions is a police officer ever indicted for these killings. There are situations where, I, I read not too long ago, I don't know what state it was in, but somewhere in the States, a gentleman was visiting friends in a town he didn't live in and went for a walk, and he had his uh, hooded sweatshirt up on and the hood up, which is not unusual in the wintertime. And the police stopped him. They didn't shoot him, luckily, but they stopped him, picked him up. They said that he had been reported and a suspicious person and all this other stuff. Well, if he was a white person walking around the neighborhood, it probably wouldn't have been anything. But this this inherent racism that is it's just a part of, of society. Uh, it's also interesting to note that 
one of the one of the more widely publicized uh, police killings of a young unarmed black man was in Ferguson, Missouri. And it's interesting to note that the Ferguson police had received training by Israel. Israel provides a lot of training, really, to uh, cities in the U.S. Uh, police departments in U.S. cities. So when one looks at Israeli police shooting unarmed people uh, with very little, if any, provocation, then they're teaching that to uh, U.S. police officers who are learning the lesson very well and and doing very well. Also, we look at the uh, racism in Israel. Um, one, a, a, a Jewish man was killed recently by Israelis because he was thought to have been Arab. I don't know why somebody was wearing, um, but it was it was just it was a mistake because they thought it was Arab. Uh, so in the United States, in in Israel, it's acceptable to shoot Arabs and kill them. And in the United States, it's acceptable for the for law enforcement to shoot blacks and kill them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's Hold not on. a situation that's getting any better. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, it looks like we may have a caller. Um, so, okay. caller, you're on the line. Are you there? Yeah. Hi. How you doing? Um, Good. Couple, hi. Couple, who is this? Is this Ken? Can you hear me? Yes. 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 Hi, Ken. Uh, How are you uh, doing? Pretty good. A couple of quick things. Uh, I read an article in RT just uh, yesterday about, uh, uh, I'll read you the title, Two IDF Soldiers Sentenced to Prison Demoted for Drive-By Shooting of Camel. Mm -hmm. So they're giving their soldiers uh, jail time for for shooting a camel, but they they shoot Palestinians with uh, total impunity. So I think that's a pretty telling sort of uh, Mm -hmm. situation. And uh, you were talk, you're talking about uh, the uh, the peace process, quote unquote. You know, I grew up around Washington. I'm a little bit older than you guys, and and I, you know, I I would I would watch the news, you know, and and uh, there was Henry Kissinger down there, and he had shuttle diplomacy back in the '68, uh, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. Nixon came in, and uh, and the sh- uh, that. That nonsense has been going on continually since then, and it's just a, it's just a sham. It's just absolute total sham, and uh, yet, but it's going on shuttle diplomacy. So uh, that's all. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and I don't know who they think they're fooling. I think it's just it's just something for them to do. You know, it's work for the boys and the girls. So I think that's basically what it amounts to. And, and grandstanding and, and, and put on a good show for the people, right? Yeah. Put on yeah. a good show for the people. Yeah. And uh, while Kissinger was having a shuttle diplomacy, bombs were dropping. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I don't, and I don't even know if, if they really uh, are fooling anybody anymore. Well, they are certainly fooling some people, I guess. So the, the, the people, mm-hmm. I, I imagine they are the, the, you know, the people that uh, go to these. Well, the mainstream type people, I guess they're still fooled, you know. So, so anyway, yeah, you can fool yeah, some of them all the time, and that's we're seeing that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well it thanks a lot. Thanks, Kent. Thanks, Kent. Okay. Uh, I was I was just going to say that you know, um, yeah, it's interesting. It seems that you know over the years. 
that the mask has dropped. Uh, Kissinger and and I think others too. Um, you know, during the Cold War, um, you know, they did have this facade of uh, diplomacy, and you know, the the rhetoric uh, was certainly antagonistic, um, you know, against Russia. And but now, um, you know, it just seems that there isn't even a. a, a a facade of wanting to show diplomacy, you know, there, there's, there's nothing. It's mm-hmm. just completely mm-hmm. devolved into, you know, these, these, these really bizarre and um, uh, just, there's just these, these, these overt lies uh, and these uh, bully schoolyard type children who, who, uh, who are running the show you know, they they don't even have a, a a desire to to put on a show of diplomacy. It's just you know name calling and and um, mm-hmm. and the same. Yes, there's, and uh, there there's no kind of outreach, uh, no 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 uh, real value effort. The only exception being possibly the recent Iran deal. At least the United States not bomb Iran. To get them to, to to agree to the, the terms, but that wasn't mainly the United States that was involved in that. There were there were several other countries that were also involved. But yes, yeah, for yeah, the United States seems, or Israel is concerned, diplomacy is not the name of the game. Yeah, it seemed to me that the the U.S. you know even though it was involved, um, you know, it didn't really want. Uh, the the sanctions to be lifted and you know now they're they're trying to push through new new sanctions and um, you know, just, just their behavior towards towards Iran you know it, it is uh, yeah you know, Carrie comes out and and makes all these you know ridiculous statements of, uh, about Iran and but meanwhile you know there there is um, this new force that that I think is coming about. Uh, you know, between Russia, China, and Iran, and, and others, who you know are, are creating uh, you know a, a different geopolitical atmosphere, um, you know that you know hopefully you know can um, you know uh, create a, a a different way of doing things that you know is is free of you know um, or more free from from U.S. influence. Um, mm-hmm. I was actually wondering about your th- about your thoughts on you know those those dynamics, uh, Bob. You know, is do you see uh, with you know the, the U.S. kind of losing uh, influence um, on the world stage, and you know, and where are those developments headed? Well, I think that is a very good and important question. U.S. will lose influence as it's. Uh, Economy is eclipsed by other countries, and China seems to be the most uh, logical or, or the country that will, will soon have a much stronger uh, much stronger uh, economy than the U.S. Uh, that, coupled with military power, will enable a, a balance of power in the, in the world, which it doesn't have right now, because right now it's the United States running the whole show and doing whatever it wants to do. But as these other countries... I mentioned uh, China, Iran, and so on. As they gain in strength, uh, then there will be a counterbalance to the United States, which would be a very important uh, development for the world. But while we're talking about Iran, 
I would like to uh, bring up another another topic that was very typical in U.S. history, and that is constant false flag of uh, some reason given by the government to start a war that is simply a lie. Now, there's several, just going back in time, I mentioned the singing of the battleship Maine. Uh, that was probably a result of internal combustion, but the uh, the government, the press, said that it, it was uh, it was Spain that had uh, blown it up. There there is no evidence. There was no evidence then. There is no evidence since then presented to, to prove it was anything other than a, an internal uh, problem with the ship that caused it to explode. But it did cause a war. It was uh, successful in that it got the United States to start another war. Uh, in Vietnam, we had the Gulf of Tonkin when uh, two ships thought they had been fired on. Their radar indicated that they had been, but then uh, the captain of one of the ships said, no, it, hadn't, it wasn't uh, actually that they had been fired on. There were, there were some ghost images on the radar. There had been no, no attack. However, that non-incident uh, was the catalyst for a major escalation of the war, and we know what a disaster that was. In uh, 2001, 2002, and 2003, we had the whole thing with weapons of mass destruction and uh, 9-11 and the people responsible for 9-11 being in Iraq, which they weren't, but it enabled the U.S. to get uh, the country behind it in invading Iraq, and we know what a disaster that was. Now, the reason uh, your mention of Iran brought this to my mind again was because a week or so ago, uh, two U.S. ships entered Iranian waters, and uh, the ships were captured and the, the sailors on them were held for a day or so. Uh, many right-wing politicians said this was an act of aggression against the United States, who was Iran, to uh, capture U.S. sailors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, by all accounts, the sailors were uh, treated humanely. Uh, the, Iranian the U.S. ships were in Iranian territorial waters, now, we could talk about how uh, the U.S. treats its political prisoners in, whether it's in Guantanamo, uh, waterboarding in Iraq, or kidnapping people and bringing them to other rendi rendition sites where they're tortured. Uh, so this, I, I was concerned that this might cause another international incident. It didn't, but it is the kind of thing that the U.S. is always willing to exploit for its own advantage. Obviously, there was no advantage to uh, either uh, further sanctioning Iran or invading Iran at this time, or that would have been done. But uh, false flags have been a, a state of U.S. foreign policy from the very start. Bob, we've got a question from um, someone in our chat room. This is from Zoya. Um, she wants to know, did you hear about the recent witch hunt in Israel against the Breaking the Silence organization? Um, if you did, what's your opinion on that and what people in North America have to say about it at all? Are you familiar with that story? Okay, thank you. Very good question. Yes, I, I am. Uh, Breaking the Silence is the group of former IDF soldiers that uh, I think Harrison mentioned before. They are... Uh, their stories. They're telling stories of atrocities they committed that they were told to commit that were part of government policy. Now, the uh, 
Israeli government is going after them, obviously, because this is not anything they want publicized. However, they are still uh, speaking out. They have not been silenced, and I hope they will not be silenced. Uh, they are being harassed. I don't know if they've been arrested yet. Uh, perhaps your your um, the person in the chat room knows more about it than I do at this point. But it is uh, it is another good sign that <clears throat> soldiers themselves are coming up. There's another group of young people who are refusing to serve in the military, which is a good sign in and of itself. But those soldiers, in breaking the silence, uh, who are are speaking out and talking to people and saying exactly what's been going on, is very powerful. Uh, they have to expect to be uh, harassed in every way possible by the Israeli government because this is this is their they are. Oh, I'm looking for. They are uh, exposing the the evil of the government that is is just uh, inherent in the government. This is this is not some fluke. This is not some uh, some military leader who went off the rails and encouraged societal practices. This is government policies, and the soldiers are uh, are exposing it. Now, is that is that the point that you're the person in the chat room wanted. If there's more information, if she could just type it in another question, uh, I'd be happy to to try to answer it. Uh, well, that's all she had. But um, if she, if she posts again, I'll read it out uh, in reply. Okay, great. Uh, uh, I just wanted to come back to the sure, the sure. Iran deal for one sec. Um, yes. There's a um, uh, there's an article by Tony Cartolucci um, that he wrote this last week, and he quotes. Um, a 2009 report um, by the Brookings Institute called The Path to Persia, Options for a New American Strategy Toward Iran. So this was in 2009, and I just want to read one paragraph from it that, that Cartolucci <laughs> brings attention to. So they write, Any military operation against Iran will likely be very unpopular around the world and require the proper international context both to ensure the logistical support the operation would require and to minimize the blowback from it. The best way to minimize international opprobrium and maximize support, however grudging or covert, is to strike only when there is widespread conviction that the Iranians were given but then rejected a superb offer, one so good that only a regime determined to acquire nuclear weapons and acquire them for the wrong reasons would turn it down. Under those circumstances, the United States or Israel could portray its operations as taken in sorrow, not anger, and at least some in the international community would conclude that the Iranians brought it on themselves by refusing a very good deal. So that's the end of the quote from this um, Which Path to Persia report, and I think it's a great, a great paragraph for a couple of reasons. One, because it just exposes... Um, exactly what you just mentioned, uh, Bob, about false flags and just how duplicitous um, mm -hmm. the the motivations to go to war are. Here, the Brookings, Brookings Institute is basically saying that we want to go to war, but we need public support. So what we're going to have to do is basically organize and plan a fake good deal for Iran, so a deal that that we want them to reject. So we'll make it so good, but somehow we'll get them to reject it. And then once they reject it, then we'll be able to portray our actions 
which we wanted to do beforehand, as being a reaction to that as opposed to the thing that we'd planned all along. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. one point. Now, the second point is that uh, they make reference to this great deal. So uh, Cartolucci wonders if this recent nuclear deal is the one that they were planning back in 2009. If that's the case, um, because, you know, it sounds like it, this was a good deal, it, but in this case, Iran did not reject it. It has gone through. So at least Cartolucci wonders if this was the deal and if the plan is still on the books, and I say it is, I'd, I'd say it is still on the books, that the the end goal is still to destabilize Iran, regime change, and basically, like Clinton said, to bomb the country if they don't, if the Americans don't get what they want. Um, so, just just to bring up the the idea that this Iran deal, um, I mean, I, I, on the surface, I think it's great. I think it's great that this happened and that the that you know sanctions have been lifted and Iran is now, um, you know, solidifying relationships all over the world again. Um, but did you have any thoughts on on this and the the idea of um, you know where American policy towards Iran will go from now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, my my thoughts that reflect yours exactly. Uh, the United States will not be satisfied uh, because uh, Israel isn't satisfied. Israel has been opposed to this deal at the very beginning, so. Uh, the United States can't can't work independently and say, "Good, this is a, a good good deal." Now, Iran got something, the world got something, Iran gave up something, and it's, that's what negotiation is all about. Uh, because Israel is still doesn't want Iran to be any kind of a nuclear power, even if it's for, for peaceful purposes. I also think it's so. So I think in answer to your question, uh, the United States is not yet done with Iran, and is still going to cause problems there, and we'll just see how how <clears throat> Iran and, and the rest of the world reacts. I'm al always happy when a country commits to having no nuclear weapons. However, I have wondered also often about why uh, Iran is not allowed to have nuclear weapons, but Israel is. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's a I think that's a question that. Needs to be asked and well, needs to be answered. It's been asked often enough, uh, but needs to be answered in, in moment next year. But yeah, I think uh, in uh, Mr. Kovic's article that you've quoted, it's a very interesting quote from Brookings Institute, uh, very telling, very typical of the way the U.S. operates. The 9 11 attacks on the U.S. were just a gift from I don't know who to uh, George Bush. I'm sure he wanted, he wanted to invade Iraq, Iraq for some time, uh, but I think, yeah, as I said, I don't think, I don't think the U.S. has done with Iran yet. Unfortunately for the world. Yeah. Well, it looks like we're coming up to the end of the show, Bob. Um, is there anything, uh, any kind of closing statement you wanted to make? Point that you want? Point that we didn't get uh, to yet? I have a, a lot, a lot a of question. Pretty good points. Mm -hmm. Oh, Maggie, you got a question? Well, no, I wanted to hear what Bob had to say, absolutely. But I do have a question. Oh, I don't think it'll take that long to answer. Yeah. yeah well, I, 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 wanted... I think we've covered a lot of good points. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Meg. Well, I, um, I've been thinking a lot recently about inspiration, you know, and hope. And, you know, it, I know with your articles, you're you're trying to call attention to what you see as injustice. So I guess my question would be, 
Um, I read in one of your articles that you found hope and inspiration from reading about the Palestinians and how they had this attitude that things were going to get better. They had hope. Um, I saw a similar video that Mondo Weiss did where they interviewed some Palestinian children, and they were hopeful. They wanted to become um, engineers to help Gaza get water. They wanted to become social workers or lawyers mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So um, I just thought I would throw that out there because it's been on my mind. Um, hope and inspiration, if mm-hmm. you have some, or what you use as a source of your inspiration to keep writing. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm in contact with several people in, in Gaza, and they have extreme difficulties. Yet they, they persevere. They they try to find work. If they're working, they go to work. They go to school. They have dreams. They have aspirations. Their their spirits are not broken. Uh, things are extremely difficult for them. Uh, I'm occasionally Skype with a couple of people. We can only do it during those hours of the day that they have electricity. Now, if we have a power outage, it's a big deal. They have electricity fuel of the day if they're lucky. Uh, they have to go somewhere and carry water back to their house, that sort of thing. Yet they they continue to live their lives. They marry, they have children. They uh, and, and they hope for and dream of and expect a better day. So they're inspiring to me and they cause me to want to work more on their behalf and behalf of, of people throughout the world. There's so many people who are oppressed. We didn't even touch on the Kashmiris who have uh, horrific oppression. There's poverty in the world. There is so much. But yes, it is, my inspiration comes from uh, Palestinians that I know and, and that I talk about on a Awesome. Thank you for the question. Well, great. Uh, thank you so much, Bob, for being on the show. Um, just so our listeners know, um, we've been speaking with Robert Fantina. He is the author of Empire, Racism, and Genocide. You can find it on Amazon. It's a great book. We recommend getting a copy, reading it, getting it, maybe get some extra copies as gifts for friends. And you can check out his website at robertfantina.com. So thanks again, Bob, for being on the show. And, uh, yeah, good luck with your future writings, and we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Uh, Thank you to all of you. Thank you to the panel. I've enjoyed this very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. Sure. All right. Yeah, thank you for coming on, Bob. Okay, thanks, Bob. Thanks Bye. again. Bye-bye. Bye. So just uh, for our listeners, make sure uh, the, make sure to tune in tomorrow uh, to the Behind the Headlines show. It's going to be a good one. It's going to Actually, it's going to hopefully touch on that last uh, question that Meg just brought up, um, basically finding hope in a world that is where there is so much reason to feel despair. So tune in tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern Time uh, on the SOT Radio Network. So until next week, everyone take care, and we'll see you then. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye.